Hello, and welcome to Good Film Hunting, the podcast where two sisters living in different parts of the country talk with friends and family about their favorite movies. And I will turn it over to Eleanor to introduce our guest and movie. Uh, I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Katie Melody, the maven of online food glory. Um, so Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Um, my name is Katie. I'm from Chicago. I live in LA. Um, I am a food video producer for So Yummy. Um, previously I've worked with other brands like BuzzFeed and OMG Facts and Dose. Um, and yeah, I just like... I guess, like, my entire career has just been a lot of food writing and food video producing and... Okay, Katie, you are being way too humble. This is the moment where you need to tell everyone about your, like, personal Instagram. Because oh, okay. even recently, Kalika was showing me red velvet cakes you made because I am off of the social media so I'm bad at seeing things and that was like stunning yeah so my Instagram is called kindness with Katie and it got named that because for a long time when I wasn't as busy I would like save my leftovers from my projects and I would like pass it out to homeless people um but I've been Mm. like way too frazzled to do that lately but that's how That's kind of how my Instagram got its name, and yeah, that's where I put all of my, like, cakes and all of my, like, I've been doing a lot of roasted chickens lately, and it's not even because I want chicken, it's because I want to make homemade stock later, so it's really just, like, in Mm. pursuit of chicken soup right now. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I, I mean, I don't have a huge Instagram, like, it's just kind of, like, me and my friends, and just making cake and stuff. So I just want you all to know that I just looked up, I just Googled her Instagram and like everything is really beautiful. And there, did you have like a homemade croissant or something? That's the first oh one. yeah. So <laughs> this past year I like got super into French pastries and I got super into croissants. So I made for work, I made two croissant videos. I did blueberry croissants, and then I also did pumpkin spice croissants. The pumpkin spice croissant looks like a dream. It was so good. It was so much fun to make. Um, that one took a lot of testing, though, on my part. Like, I I got super excited when I thought of it, and I went to Bristol Farms, which, if you don't know what that is, it's like a super bougie, like, L.A. grocery chain, and... I got so excited because I'm like, it's going to work. And then my first batch, like, totally screwed it up. Like, it was way too – the mixture I made was way too wet, and I ended up with this, like, weird pumpkin, like, ooze situation. But, like, yeah, the pumpkin spice croissants are definitely, like, a labor of love, and it was a lot of fun to make. But I think if I could – If I could go back and change anything about that video, which I love that video so much, it's so much fun, but I gave it, like, a Quentin Tarantino kind of song in the background, and, like, at the time it made sense, like, the, like, it's, like, it's this, like, fall autumn-y croissant video, and then in the background it's, like, no, 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 no,
like at the time it made sense but um yeah so I did a lot That's of croissants so funny yeah I did a lot of cake That's... decorating I did a lot of bread this year your cakes are beautiful I see that you have like a trend of like doing you brought it to Eleanor's birthday party like the the crepe cake I mean, yeah yeah, yeah. I, you seem like a crepe like cake queen I do. I really like crepe cakes, and I feel like they should make a comeback because, like, it's not like a regular cake decorating where you have to be really good at decorating it, and you have to be really, like, you have to know your shit when you're decorating a cake. Sorry, are we allowed to swear? I'm sorry. You are. Um, you are. Fine. You're fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I feel like with regular cake decorating, it's a lot of, like, balance, and it's a lot of, like... You got to be good at decorating, but also at, like, structural integrity. And crepe cake is literally, like, do you know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Cool. You could probably also make a crepe cake if you wanted to. Because it's literally just, like, crepe cream, crepe cream. You just layer them up and, like, add powdered sugar. And people are like, oh, my God, that's crazy. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, so now that all of our listeners have a much clearer sense of your incredible (laughs) skill set, she didn't even really describe her royal wedding themed cake, too. Like, (laughs) the wedding cake. Uh, And all of her thoughts on Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, we will need to discuss how the news is coming out that Kate didn't join the Boxing Day shoot after Meghan had left. (laughs) Uh, well, I feel like we should probably also say how we know each other. Um, <laughs> True. Okay. How do we know each other, Katie? <laughs> so my grandma was Eleanor and Annie's history teacher in high school. And I yes. moved to LA and I didn't know anybody. And my grandma like got me the hookup with Eleanor. <laughs> and it was, it's been amazing. And I'm so glad that happened. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do, do it all it's it's, it's so, so much fun, fun. And, and it's lovely, lovely to have so many awesome, awesome people, people in LA, LA. So, that's so that's always right. a blast, always a blast. Um, but okay so, okay so but the Meghan um, Markle thing um I got so like so Kate it sounded like she hung out with Meghan waited for Meghan to go home and then went pheasant shooting mm-hmm is that supposed to be, like, a shade or something? I, I don't really know, because I know Kate's been into pheasant hunting for a while, and she's been into it for, like, forever. And Megan hasn't been, specifically because animal rights and She's like against... Oh, oh, so right. she's, like, she's, like, intentionally protesting. She's, like, very against cruelty to animals. I read a story that, like, Prince Harry had to convince her that it was okay to do because there were too many pheasants on the royal property. So they were going to starve if they didn't like shoot them. Gotcha. There's just so many things. I just feel bad because I feel like if I was in Megan's position, which I wish I was, but like if, um, I feel like I just suck it up and go pheasant hunting because like that's, in my opinion, a lot of times in royal history and in royal, like, socializing like the pheasant hunting is where you kind of get in the inner circle like for example if we remember on the crown prince philip when he was like he had just married elizabeth and he's like trying to get to know her dad like her dad didn't really like 
talk to him one-on-one until they went pheasant shooting together. So I'm not, I like, I get it, like, respect the lives of the pheasants, but also, like, that's your chance to, like, right your wrongs, make your mark, and say, like, screw you guys, I'm good at being a royal too. Just my opinion. <laughs> this is why yeah. you should work for the Kensington Royal. Social media page. Okay, I have another thought about that. I feel like the Kensington Royal social media page is really well run. The Clarence House one, on the other hand, is very, like... Agreed. I 100% agree with that assessment. I tweeted at the Clarence House one because I was... They've been really into referring to Charles by his other titles, which is fine when you call him the Prince of Wales because he's the only Prince of Wales, and he has been the only Prince of Wales for, like, 70 years or whatever. But, in my opinion, like, they called him, like, the Duke of Rothesay or something like that. And I was just... But that's what they have to call him when he's in Scotland. Oh! Because I was Googling, and I'm like, is this some rando who they're, like, featuring? No, it's Prince... No. It's in the same way that they have to call, um... They also call Kate and William when they're in Northern Ireland and in Scotland. They have different titles. Oh, that's mm-hmm. super weird. I'm, like, very excited that I knew this and you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Not that, like, the fact that, like, you didn't know it, but just the fact that, uh, that it, regardless, I'm going to sound like a bad person for saying all of that. <laughs> but, okay, so, Katie, apart from your your own work and your own interest in things royal and in terms of food, we're really excited to talk to you today because we picked a food-themed movie, knowing that you would be an incredible guest to talk about Julia and Julie and Julia. So tell us a little bit about, if you can, give us a synopsis of the film Julie and Julia, and kind of just like your hot take on it, and then we'll go from there. So Julie and Julia is my favorite movie ever. <laughs> it is... <laughs> So the story no is, bias there no, no bias, bias at all I love it it's one of those movies it's kind of, I always describe it to people like it's a Nora Ephron film so it's like Hairspray or like when Harry met Sally I mean Hairspray isn't a Nora Ephron movie but it's one of those movies that you watch and it's just such a it makes you so happy and it's such a feel good fun movie that you just kind of walk out like this is great. Everything's great. I'm so happy to be a person in this time and age. Like, it's such... So, the film is... It's kind of a intermingling braid between the memoirs of Julia Child. Julia Child has a bunch of memoirs, but her main one that everyone in the food world has read is called My Life in France. And that is just basically her time right after she and Paul got married to up into right before Mastering the Art of French Cooking is published and right before, you know, her TV career takes off and she becomes, like, the Julia we know today. So it's kind of the, like, her pushing herself up the mountain towards greatness. Um, And then the other (laughs) intermediate... The other memoir is... um, it's Julie and Julia, which is the memoir of Julie Powell, who decided to challenge herself to make every recipe in Mastering the Art of French Cooking in a year. So it's that memoir that's really, that's kind of the base of it. It, 
originally in the book Julie and Julia, it's really like all about Julie and then every so often you get a page about Julia. But the movie, blessedly, is 50-50. I wouldn't even say it focuses a little more on Julia than on Julie because there's a lot more going on in the Julia story. In the Julie story, it's a lot of like, ah, I f***ed up my chicken or like, oh god, we have to make aspic and we have to go find a cow hoof somewhere. And um, the Julia story is a lot of like, I think Julia Child's personal life story is like super interesting and I would love if they ever made like I love Julie and Julia but I would love if they ever made like a Netflix series that was like just the Julia story because she she was her story was so deep considering like her background her marriage her life abroad the fact that she was a spy like there's so many her spy story she invented shark repellent bombs like she's a very accomplished person and I found out they still use that. I didn't realize that's like something you have to think about when you're making underwater bombs for German U-boats is like, oh, we have to make something that like a shark or a dolphin won't just like bump into. Like we have to like, we have to spray it down with something so that it'll just hit the target. Um, but yeah, so the movie is, it's, I love the movie so much. It's really uh, I think the thing I like the most is they're both, they're both like, they're both government employees. They're both women who are in like really happy marriages, but they're having like fertility issues and that's causing a lot of stress for both of them. Um, the Julie story, I, the Julie story is interesting because she works at like a government, I don't even remember what it was. It's some sort of like government insurance claims company where she um she basically like it's it's right after 911 so people who like you know were injured as a result of 911 they call her and you know it's a very stressful job because she's having to like convince the government to like give people health insurance basically Funny. and you see just at the beginning of the movie, you see her just, like, slowly dying inside because she's, like, I have to, like, convince people that other people's lives are valuable. And then at the same time, it's, like, you know, you see her, like, perk back up because she's, like, well, I'm gonna make a pie and then everything's gonna be just fine. And her... The thing that spins off the Julie and Julia project, which is what her blog is called, she starts it by going, um... She goes to brunch with her girlfriends from college, and, like, one's a big TV exec, one's a huge writer, the other one is this, like, hedge fund crazy business lady, and they're all, like, super, super successful, and they're all on the phones with their assistants, and they're all like, oh, what are you doing, Julie? And she's like, I'm a government drone, and I hate my life. So that kind of makes her want to start this blog where she can just totally, like, you know, and this is 2001, like, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have YouTubers, like, getting famous on the internet wasn't even a thing yet, so she was one of those first people to kind of really use it as that kind of tool, so she starts by, like, cooking through all the recipes, and then, like, I really like the way the film is edited, because it'll be, like, Julie will be, like, oh, and I had an egg for the first time, and then it'll cut to Julia Child in cooking class at um, Le Cordon Bleu, and the lady is like, 
it's time to learn to boil eggs. And then Julia Child just goes, I know how to boil an egg. Like, put me in with the big guys. Like, I want to take a real cooking class. So it's, yeah, it's it's also, it's one of those Nora Ephron movies where if you read a lot of Nora Ephron, which I have because I'm a 58-year-old woman on the inside. I, like, I, I love, I, like, I think I read, like, I feel bad about my neck when I was, like, 14. Like, that's... Like I've I've I you know it's like wait what is wait can you say that again what is that oh book? that's a Nora Ephron Nora Ephron right. one you of her would love it I feel bad about my neck it's called yeah. I feel bad about my neck and I think it just got turned into a show that Amy Poehler is producing but it's Nora Ephron's writing is really like it's like chicken soup for the soul except it's one person instead of a bunch of people and it's very like. I feel bad about my neck is all about like the struggles of being, you know, you're, you're, you're growing up, but you also want to be like young and beautiful and fun still. And it's, I really like it. Um, but (laughs) it's funny because I'm, I've read Nora Ephron before. So I like have all of these references from her essays that like show up in Julie and Julia. So like Julie goes on a rant about like, oh, like, if there was a meteor heading towards the sky and we had, like, 30 days to live, I would spend it eating butter. I'm, like, sitting there, like, that's from I Feel Bad About My Neck. <laughs> so, it's a lot. <laughs> so, wait, so, so you had the multi-layered text kind of before this. So, yeah. when you first watched this movie, had you read Julie and Julie, the memoir? No, or had you read I had not read it. Julia Child's writing. I really, so I saw the movie right when it came out in 2009, which was my freshman year of high school, and I watched it, um, I watched it with my friends Annie, and I think my friend Erica was there, and we were this group of girls at school who, like, we weren't nerdy, but we were nerdy. Like, we were one of the many nerdy groups of girls, but we were, like, the nerdy baking group, and that's what we did. And so we did a lot of baking and we did a lot of like anime watching and like that was our thing. Um, <laughs> but so we went together. Melody in high school, I can only imagine. <laughs> it's like my life was literally like Harry Potter, anime, cupcakes. That's all you need to know. <laughs> but we were we were such nerds. What else is there? Oh yeah, we were such nerds that we were like, oh, we should go to the show at like four so that we can get home before curfew like that's how nerdy we were and we um so we went to the show at four and it was like three 15 year old girls and like the entire senior citizen community of our town <laughs> like, and that's how I learned about what matinee shows are but we, that is so spectacular we watched it um so I hadn't seen I hadn't read the book I had read Nora Ephron, and um, I was really into Food Network. That's why I had seen it, because on Food Network, they were playing trailers of this movie, like, over and over and over again. And I was like, excuse me, I want to watch my Ace of Cakes. Like, I've got things, like, that was when Food Network celebrities were really kind of starting to take off. Like, I just remember, like, Ace of Cakes was really big, Rachel Ray was really big, um... Can't remember who else. I think those were the only two I was really into. It was just Ace of Cakes and Rachel Ray. But that's how... That's kind of the mindset I was in when I watched it. Um, okay. Did you... 
was this one of several movies about restaurants that kind of came out around the same time yeah. that I enjoyed? Like, because there was No Reservations, which was a remake of the German film, mostly Martha. Or did the, So you said this is, like, one of your favorite films. So in your mind, what distinguishes this film from the other, like, kitchen movies? Mm. I think this one is super... Um, I think that I like No Reservations. It's not one of my favorites because I think um, Julie and Julia, you kind of go on the journey with them as they're learning how to cook. And you experience all of those, like, frustrations and all of the, like, intermittent craziness going on of, like, um, so, like, there's this scene where Julie, like, she's making something, I think it's during the aspect episode, I mean, the aspect scene, and, like, she needs to get Drano because their sink is clogged because she's been pouring friggin' aspect down it all day long, (laughs) and, like... I think, I think that's why I like it so much more than the others is because you go into, like, no reservations or, like, um, Chef is another really good one. You go into those movies, and they're already, like, cutthroat cooks who have been doing this for years. But Julie and Julia, you kind of experience that, like, nice little, like, learning curve. It's almost like in the in the world of cooking movies, like, Julie and Julia is kind of the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Where, like, you learn all about the magical world with them. And, like, no reservations is, like, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is, like, there's nothing left to learn. We've got to get Voldemort, like, if that makes okay, sense. Okay, that's hilarious. Wait, 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 but, okay, I have a question. I want I, to know the entire Harry Potter series lined up to cooking movies now, because I feel like you have it within you. But, okay, sorry, Annie, I interrupted. No, no, so, like, honestly, I want that too, Katie, because... That just sounds amazing. But I just, like, I had a question. So as someone who is, like, in food production for media, um, so do we think that Meryl Streep had to learn how to cook for this movie at all? Like, did she handle food? Or was food handled by, like, production assistants who then would just, like, tell her how to do it on screen? Right. I'm, I, I can almost guarantee there were food stylists on set. Um, I think what a lot of people don't realize is almost every movie has a food stylist. Like, even if it's, like, even if it's, like, The Godfather, like, you have someone behind the scenes, like, making the pasta and making the cannolis and making all this other stuff. Um, one, because it's a safety issue, because unless you're willing to get all of your actors, like, food safety certified, it's not worth, like, having one of them accidentally food poison the others. The other thing is that, you know, you want it to turn out perfectly. Like, you want it to, can you imagine, like, oh, I got food poisoning from Al Pacino. This is the worst. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, I, so, yeah, food styling is a huge thing in movies. Like, I know, um, there were a ton of food stylists who worked on the Harry Potter series. Just because food is such a huge, like, part of the Harry Potter story and sometimes the things they make in those um movies are like completely inedible so like they might have like a whole buffet table of fake food and then like one real food that the person eats so that sometimes happens in movies um I really like uh if you follow oh what's her name the actress who played Pam Beasley in The Office 
Jenna Fisher. Jenna Fisher's Instagram is really funny about this because she has this trick that she shows on her Instagram about, um, like, when you're acting, you, like, if you're shooting a scene where you're eating something, you have to make it look like you're taking a giant bite, but you're really taking a teeny tiny bite of food. Because if you have to reshoot that over and over again, like, uh uh-oh, surprise, you ate 15 tacos today. So she, she does this thing where she, like, holds it and, like, she goes, like, ah, and then takes, like, the teeniest bite of food. Um, Food styling in Julie and Julia (laughs) is, uh, I, I can guarantee, like, Nora Ephron was such a cooking, like, fanatic like I don't think people realize that like her first novel was about like a food network host whose husband is cheating on her it's called heartburn it's really good um Meryl Streep is also in that movie um but I'm sure like Nora Ephron was like okay like you have to like pretend to bone a duck but like we had the food stylist like pre-bone it for you so you basically just have to pull them out Something like that. Because a lot of the food scenes in Julia and Julia, like, you're looking at it and you're like, that's like 100% a chicken. And that's like, definitely, you know, shoe pastry being worked with. So I don't know if if, um, Meryl Streep learned to cook for this movie, but I think she definitely like did a little food handling. Okay. I'm cool with that. But okay, now I have a question for you that I know this is a thing. Why aren't you a food stylist for a movie? I feel like that would be like a really fun job for you. Oh, for sure. Um, I don't know. Because I like my current job. <laughs> Fair, and you get to be like innovative and cool. That's and, like, true. I mean, I had to like think about it the other day. I was like, my job is basically like, coming up with something cool and then convincing others that it's cool and then I get to do it like that's the whole shebang really but um Julie and Julia I think I mean I would love to look up who is a food stylist there but like I have friends who have done food stylist commercials like I have a lot of friends who come to my work who have come from the food stylist commercial land and they all kind of they prefer working for pages like So Yummy or like Tastemade or Tasty just because it is nicer to have a more steady, it's it's more, how do I explain it? I guess it's it's just nicer to have like a stable job than to have like, it, it would basically be like being a freelancing um, producer or something like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. But, oh. Can we talk about for a second? I mean, I love Julie and Julia, and I love the food in it. I also love Stanley Tucci. I love Stanley Tucci. And I feel like of the two, yeah, I feel like of the two husbands that are, like, in this movie, so, like, Stanley Tucci plays Meryl Streep, Julia Child's husband, and then what's-his-name who plays Danny in the Mindy Project. Yeah, that's like... What's his name? Chris Messina. I, like, wanted to call him Eric Bana for some reason, but I think that's because I, like, just watched the other Bullet Girl, so I think I'm confused. (laughs) (laughs) Of course the other Bullet Girl is something you just watched recently, just for No, I, like, just watched it for the first time because for the longest time, um, I wasn't allowed to watch it because there was too much Sex. sex in it. 
Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, can we pause for one second? Now I'm just, like, so epically curious about food stylists in movies. Right. Do you think that, like, food stylists for movies, like, the other Boleyn girl have to, like, understand the history of, like, the pastry that's in oh, those films? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Fascinating. My mind is blown. So I work... I work for, the page I work for is called So Yummy. We have a sister page at our company called Blossom, and it's a lot, they do a lot of um, DIY videos, they do a lot of lifestyle videos, but a video they did that just went viral is Food Styling Secrets, and it's, it shows all the way, like, all the ways commercials, like, fake out, um, so they use, like, shaving cream as whipped cream, because it doesn't deflate. Um, they'll use, like, um, brown food coloring on a raw turkey so that it looks cooked, but it's not really cooked. Um. What is the purpose of that? Um, one, it (laughs) saves time. And two, um, turkeys, like, deflate a lot as they cook. So you get the image of this, like, giant, juicy turkey without having to, like, cook it. Cook it, Yeah. So that's a really good video to watch if you're interested in, like, learning about all the commercial food styling. On historical films, they definitely – what's nice about historical films is they'll have, like, historians on set. Um, A really famous example is, like, Downton Abbey hired this Edwardian um, etiquette expert, I guess is what he was. And he, like, would – like, every time the director cut, he would, like, go up to Lady Mary or whoever and be like, don't hold your gloves this way. Like, a lady of your status would never do that. Um, (laughs) Similarly, they have food historians who do the same thing, who, like, come on and are like, hey, actually, uh, potatoes weren't introduced to the UK until the 1600s, so maybe they don't belong in this scene. (laughs) Things like that, that, like, only huge food nerds would care about. Um, There's a lot of YouTube channels that are dedicated to, like, food history specifically. Um, This one I really like. I think it's called... um, I don't remember the name of the channel itself, but the series is called Mrs. Crombley's Kitchen or something like that. And she's a Victorian cook. So she'll just stop and, like, it's so funny because she's really sassy with the maids. And she, she'll be like, we don't have to worry about the appearance of this dish as it is for the servants. And it's very, like, <laughs> yeah, it's super cute. Um, so that's one I really like for food history just because it'll show, like, oh, they didn't use a lot of sugar in pre-Victorian times because, like, um, there was a trade embargo due to the Atlantic slave trade and, like, all of these other things. There was this huge boycott, actually, on white sugar, I think, during the reign of George III. So, like, Regency, Jane austen times. There was a huge, like, everybody boycotted sugar because they were, like, the f- slogan was, we don't want our tea sweetened by blood. So, oh. it's, so in, um, in movies, like, Becoming Jane and things like that, like, you won't see a lot of, like, sugar on the tables and things like that. Oh my goodness. goodness. I am loving this so much. I am learning everything. So much learning. (laughs) I would love if there was a movie about, um, this is super lame, 
during <laughs> during the French Revolution, there was this chef called Chef Karenin. I think that was his name. I don't know the spelling or the correct pronunciation. He had escaped Russia to become, like, the head chef of Marie Antoinette's court. And he he gets there, like, right as they're chopping her head off. So he can't really be her fancy-ass chef anymore. But he spent a lot of his culinary career, like, working for Napoleon, working for all these, like, cool, you know, aristocrat types. And what he ended up doing was he ended up, like, he recreated a lot of Marie Antoinette's dishes, like, in honor of her on the anniversary of her death. And I was like, yeah, so he was, like, a really cool, like, like celebrity chef before celebrity chefs were a thing. But you would know, like, if you went to his restaurant, like, you could have, like, the Marie Antoinette experience, which would start with, like, you know, the things she would have had in the Holy Roman court, like, like, they were super simple. Like, her mom would, like, give her, like, asparagus with melted cheese on it and be like, here. Well, not her mom. Her governess or whoever. But, you know, and then it would turn into, like, so it would go from, like, the simplicity of the Austrian court to, like, the insaneness of the French court to, like, prison food. Which is something I always, like, yeah, her final meal was chicken noodle soup, but with no chicken and no noodles. So it was just chicken broth, really. <laughs> Okay, so Katie, you tell us all these stories, and we're so happy that you're so happy with your job, but what, what, how will you spread this knowledge to other people, like, beyond our podcast? Because it is incredible, and, like, you are so engaging, and you have an enthusiasm about this material that cannot be replicated, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) Um, I mean, we'll, I can't really talk about it, but we will, I personally just try to let it out in my Instagram every so often. So I did like a, this is really funny, you know, Bricks and Scones and Larchmont? Yes. They sell the rolls that were like Jane Austen's favorite rolls. The chewy rolls they have there, the ones that are like gluten-free and they're sesame covered but, like, you cut it in half and it's totally hollow inside, that's based off of the bath rolls that Jane Austen loved. So, like, I got, like, tea and I got the rolls and I, like, took a picture and I was like, happy birthday, Jane Austen! <laughs> um, so I try to let it out in the ways that I can. <laughs> how do people learn about food? And For example, like, in the... How did you know that about Jane Austen? Or, like, where do you go to find information? I mean, if it's, a, if it's a specific person I'm interested in, I will just Google it, to be honest. Um, but what I really like is I re- there's a lot of historical cooking books out there that I really enjoy. Um, like, right now I'm reading The Little House Cookbook, which is, like, it'll take the passage from Little House on the Prairie and it'll... Um, It'll analyze it, and then it'll compare it to, like, cookbooks of the time, and it'll be like, based on this, we think that this is the recipe for Ma's vanity cakes or something like that, Um, which were really just, like, pancakes with egg whites folded in, but whatever, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Like, we, uh, I I personally just do a lot of reading, um... And there was also this BBC show that got me into historical cooking a lot. It's called, um, it's called The Supersizers. 
but they do a different historical period for a week. And then they go to a doctor at the beginning of the week and they go to a doctor at the end of the week. So, like, they did the Regency era and the doctor was like, holy shit, you guys are going to die of heart attacks if you keep doing this. Because the Regency era, if you look at a daily menu, it's literally, like, Welsh rarebit was, like, the side dish for every meal. And, like, it was all these, like, giant hams and, like, Cornish game hens and all this, like, super, super fattening stuff. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm mostly just a nerd who likes to learn things. <laughs> That's the dream. That is I mean, the dream. Honestly, like, all of this is fascinating, and I wouldn't know where or how or even, like, what to Google. And I'm being honest about that. Like, I would never think to Google, like, what did Jane Austen like to eat? Or, like, <laughs> I just, I wouldn't. And so it's so great. I'm so thankful that, that there are people like you out there who are passionate enough about it to know. Oh, thanks. <laughs> okay. So, but I want to tie back to Julie and Julia because, like, that was really the springboard of our conversation. Um, and just, like, based off of that, if you were to do a, like, long-term self-cooking challenge, what would it be for you? I think I would probably, well, let's clarify. I think the reason why the Julie Julia project went viral for its time was because Julia Child was such a well-established figure at that point, And it was also like right around Julia Child's 100th birthday or something like that. So I think part of it, anywho, if I wasn't worried about like going viral, I would probably want to do like like, a different decade every week kind of cooking challenge. And, Ooh. like, I don't know if I would focus solely on, like, one country's cooking, though. Like, I think it would have to be more research, and I would have to do, like, okay, this week I'm doing the Lewis and Clark challenge, and I'm gonna eat horse meat for the first time. Or, like, something like that. I don't really think, like, American, I feel like such a... American cooking is like excellent and it's totally its own genre but it's also like so new and not like exciting enough that it wouldn't be able to stand on its own in a project I guess like you you can't really do a cooking challenge without incorporating an international aspect at some point so it'd probably be a challenge of like okay this week I'm doing 1300s Japan because that was during the time of the like what was it called like the cloud dynasty or not the dynasty but it was when like the Japanese imperial family was in like such a like dreamland of like art and culture and they just got to focus on making everything like as mesmerizing as possible like that would be interesting to explore but like I don't know Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess it would be, like, a different decade in a different country every week. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That would be... I know we're just starting off 2019, but it would be fun to plan. Even, like... Because I feel like a project like this almost takes a long time planning. Yeah. To think of a challenge. Oh, I'm, like, so into this. And I'm, like, how can I find ways to support Katie in, like, (laughs) doing decade decade dinners dinners or something something like that? Decade dinners, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh I honestly goodness. would like fly to LA to be a part of it. This sounds so fun. And also everything you cook is really delicious. So like we oh, cool. <laughs> we um I've like always wanted to do like a cooking challenge like Julie and Julia and I tried to do it with Rachel Ray one year. But the problem is is and as much as I love Rachel Ray, like no tea to Rachel Ray. But Rachel Ray's cooking is still, at its core, like, super basic, which sucks, but, I mean, it's, like, it's, Rachel Ray's cookbooks are also the cookbooks that, like, taught me how to cook, like, and I'm so grateful for that, but it's also, like, she, um, uh uh-oh. That's our home phone. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) I'll turn off my microphone. Um, like, in a Giada de Laurentiis, it would be, like, a challenge, but it wouldn't be, like... I think the reason why Julie and Julia was such a hard challenge for Julie Powell was because it, um... It's the hardcore French culinary school stuff that, like, no one in their right mind feels like making ever. Like, no one... Aspect. Aspect. Like, yeah, let's make some beef gelatin from scratch. Like... I kind of almost did that though. I made stock and I, and I made specifically, I made stock for pho and pho is like one of my favorite foods. And if you have time to make it homemade, like it's totally worth it. However, like eight hours of simmering, not so much. (laughs) So, which is basically what making aspect is. I, I guess if I had just kept simmering it for, like, another four hours, like, I would have been there. But mm-hmm. I'm also a food person who doesn't really mind taking time on those things. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think what's cool from the historical aspect of Julie and Julia is that Julia Child, like, wasn't a super well-palated person. Like, she wasn't someone who grew up, like eating delicious things like she grew up with a standard American diet which at the time was like 80% canned foods so she grew up eating like canned vegetables and creamed corn and like all that other stuff and it wasn't until she met Paul Child who had grown up you know in this like bougie east coast like family who liked to introduce their kids to new foods all the time So they meet when they're working for the OSS in Sri Lanka and she's like eating like creamed corn or something. And he's like, Hey now, Hey now, there's a better world out there for you. (laughs) And And she finds (laughs) it. And she finds it. And he introduced her to like Indian food and she was like, Holy moly. And then, you know, they get married and conveniently get sent off to France. And that's where he like really, I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of their marriages is that, their marriage is that he helps cultivate this like love of food with her. Like she was really kind of just like very blase da. And then she meets Paul and Paul's like, have you ever had butter chicken before? And she's like, what? It's very, it's such. So we all just have to find our Pauls. We got to, we all just have to find our Pauls. Fight to our lives. (laughs) That's gonna be my number number one of what I'm looking for. A man who had some spice. I feel like his and Stanley Tucci was like the only person who could have played that character right. Like he did such a good job. And so much and I feel bad because it's like people in the reviews of the movie, they were like, Oh, Julie's husband's kind of boring and I'm like, plot twist, 
that's how he is in the book too. Like they're like yeah. if anything, they just made Julie more likable for the movie. Because when you read the book, you see all she, of the meltdowns in all of their awful glory. <laughs> she does not present herself in a positive light in the book, I would say. No. Oh, I've never she, read the book. The book is really good, but in the book, she's, like, fully, like, I was a psycho bitch who made my husband buy me calf hooks all the time. <laughs> yeah. It was super, um... What I love about, but I, and the thing is, is like, that is part of what makes the book so funny is that she is totally willing to like, just like lay it all out there. And in the movie, they try to make her a little more likable, which is fine, but it's also like, oh, now she's just kind of like a spoiled brat who gets forgiven all the time, even though she doesn't really deserve it. (laughs) Um... But yeah, I, but also, like, what I think is so funny is, like, in the book, the book, she does, she starts with the Julia Child recipes that are easy. So she starts with, um, leek and potato soup, which is, like, super easy to make. Um, and then she gets into the hard stuff. But in the movie, they have her start with the hard stuff. (laughs) And I thought that was something that they could have, like, emphasized more of, like, oh my god, it's hollandaise, and that takes, like, a lot of tries to get it right because you can scramble the eggs and all this other crap. Um, And, I mean, she just totally, like, she doesn't present herself in a good light, and she tries to present this life, this light that, like, Julia saved me, and it's like, okay, she didn't, though. Um, things were still really, really hard. Right. Well, Julia also didn't like Julie. And that's a point. Yes. That's a point in the movie where they're like, Julia hates me. And it's like, Julia, yes, Julia, the 90 year old woman who doesn't like your, you know, sassy, swearing blog of recreating her websites. Like, no, she's an elderly woman who like, doesn't have time for your shit. Like, Sorry. <laughs> but also, I think... Th- and that's a part of the movie... Like, people really critiqued Meryl Streep's presentation of Julia Child because they were like, you were nothing like her, blah, blah, blah. And Meryl Streep brought up a good point of like, well, I'm not really playing Julia. I'm My job is to play the Julia that is like the fictional fairy godmother to Julie. Right. Like, the one that Julie feels like is, you know, over her shoulder, like the big good fairy helping her figure out how to, you know, make Boof Borg and Yawn. Which I thought was a really, like, that's a really good note now that I know it. But, like, that's something they should have clarified in the movie a little more. Because in the movie, you feel like these are just two memoirs that are extremely similar that you know, they go through the same struggles and they end with the same results. But, like, instead, at the end, they're like, she's just the imaginary Julia. Ha ha ha. And it's like, I feel like that should have, I don't know, give me some clouds in the background or something. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point to make. Um, But, I mean, honestly, I didn't love this movie when I first saw it. I think I was like, oh, there's no, like, 
real happy ending. It's just like this blog that just goes on. Like it didn't feel like there was the real um right kind of ending in the sense that like in a Hollywood movie we usually get like the full plot and like it's a it's, bow. it's not it it's not like um the ending reminds me a little bit and this might be a stretch, but it reminds me of La La Land, which is oh, another yeah. movie I love where you know it's like it ends, but you don't know what happened. You know, there's no, there's not a huge sense of closure except like, oh, we went off in our different directions. Um, I think what they could have emphasized more is, like, the real ending is Julia gets her book deal. Julia gets her show. Things are going well for Julia, but instead <laughs> you get. Julia gets her book deal, and then it cuts to Julie, you know, finishing the project and then going to Julia Child's house at the Smithsonian, which is a beautiful moment, but it's also like, oh, I would give anything to, like, switch those scenes around, because I feel like that would have made the movie feel 100% different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I get that. But I think also, I I think the reason they left it open-ended was because at the time, Julie Powell was writing her second book, which was meant to be a follow-up to Julie and Julia. And I think in the producers' minds, they were like, oh, so we'll have this, so that way when we make the sequel to this, it'll be, you know, Julie Powell navigates her way through being a best-selling author and then coincidentally, oh, Julia Child is navigating her way through being a best-selling author. Um, but instead, Julie Powell's second book comes out, and like everyone hated it. It was oh really? What was it oh, about? Oh my gosh! I mean, I person, I it had merits for sure. It's called Cleaving. It's about um, butchery, which is like super interesting. But also, it's about like. Her, her marriage to Eric is falling apart, and she, um, she just totally, like, she cheats on him all the time, she has an affair, she, um, and then while she's doing this affair, she's, like, you know, going to butcher school, and it's, it's hard because she's, mm-hmm. she's relying on her, like, snarky sense of humor to get her through it, and it just doesn't, um, and I think, ugh, it's so hard because the main complaint was, like, in Julie and Julia, everyone read it and they really liked Eric. And they really, like, thought Eric was, like, a cool, upstanding guy. And he is. And then Cleaving is just Julie, like, throwing it all away and being like, this is an H-bone. Ha ha ha. I think the reason they <laughs> oh, left that's, like, sad. They, but that's I think that's the reason they ended Julie and Julia the way they did is so that if the book had done well they could have made a sequel movie and instead nope yeah well it's it's good okay so we should start wrapping up this wonderful episode where I learned literally so much um, and we always end our episodes here at Good Film Hunting by talking about our favorite pop culture moment of like the week or of the past few days so okay does anyone have a thought i can have a thought 
So I can go first. I'm ready. Um, I recently, as in just today, finished a book that Eleanor actually requested from the library for me. It's called Pride, and it re it like recasts Pride and Prejudice in modern Brooklyn. Um, oh my god! Between two African American, it's like a love story between two African American teenagers. Um, and it's really, really good. I very much enjoyed it. I was one of those girls growing up and still kind of am who would read Pride and Prejudice every single year. I'm a dork. It's fine. Um, and I love any adaptations of it. And this one was no different. Like, it was really cute. I really liked it. I felt like I learned a lot about the neighborhood in Brooklyn and, and gentrification and all those things. So I enjoyed it immensely. Thanks, Al. I'm so glad. Okay. And I'll send you the book information, Katie, because yes, I know you'd do. be a fan. <laughs> uh, for me, I started a Netflix show that was originally from Northern Ireland, and it came out earlier this year. Have you watched Dairy Girls? I heard about it. It looks uh, really cool. I'm obsessed. So it's set in Derry, or as the English would say, London Dairy in Northern Ireland, and it's about four teenage girls and one of their cousin, male cousins growing up in like the early 90s in Derry. And it's so much fun. And it's also like my ideal show in that there's only six episodes in the season and they're 20 minutes each. So you can be like, mm. cool, two hours. And then I am done with the show. Like, done. And it's so funny. It's very funny, but it's also very powerful and meaningful in that it shows for example like the school bus being stopped and then and the girls who are there don't think of it's like any big deal that there's like soldiers on the bus coming and just at the checkpoint whereas the cousin who just moved from England is like terrified because there's soldiers (laughs) everywhere so I thought it was it's really it's really fun and it's available on Netflix so my pop culture thing, aside from Meghan Markle, is uh, probably, probably I just saw the photos for the new Little Women that they're making. Oh, they have photo photos out. Stop. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I feel like Saoirse Ronan is just like copying pasting Winona Ryder's career from the '90s and just doing that. Be- which is great. Honestly, like, I'm okay hoping she it. doesn't self like steal things. Oh, yeah. Then that would stop it. <laughs> but I uh, no, it looks really cute, and like the costumes look really cute, and like Emma Watson is in it, which I didn't know about. But um, I guess it's another situation where it was supposed to be Emma Stone, and then Emma Stone dropped out for something else, and then Emma Watson did it. So. so they're just going, like, clicking back and forth. Yeah, it totally. Like all of the time. I found out Emma Stone was supposed to be Belle in but, Beauty and the Beast, and I'm what? like, that might have actually been a better choice, but whatever. Um, really? I thought Emma Watson did okay. I thought she did great, but Emma Stone, I think, is, like, a slightly better singer, and that's what I was kind of missing from Belle, I think. Fair. Okay. New Little Women, very exciting. Um, also, Meryl Streep's going to be Aunt March in that, which is great. 
So who does Emma Watson play, though? I'm now looking she at She plays photos. the older sister who is not... Meg. She plays Meg. Meg. Okay. And then Saoirse plays... See, I only know the movie. I haven't read the books. Um, Saoirse plays um, the next sister. <laughs> Joe. Joe. And then I think the other two were either, like, teen stars who I didn't know, or they were just, like, slightly too young for me to know who they are. Um, okay. And then... Uh, but we will. Oh, Timothy worry. Chalamet is in it, too. Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, he's, he's playing Laurie. He's Laurie. We're very excited about that. Oh, I'm so excited about it. I can't wait for this movie. I feel like we have to do another costumed, like viewing of this movie. Preach. You don't have to tell me. I will watch. Well, I'll show up in bonnets. I'll watch I'll watch Little Women all of the time. Same. Anytime. It was my favorite book. I love all versions. I really like the PBS version, too. Like, I wasn't, a lot of people were a little annoyed with the PBS version. I love the PBS version. Oh, my parents hated it. Like, they told me not to watch it. Oh. It's, you know... It's okay. Yeah. Robin and Bob have lots of opinions, so... It's true. It's okay. true. I have to run, so... Eleanor, do you want to do our thing? Yeah. Katie, thank you so much for being our guest. Again, our, uh, everyone can find her at Kindness with Katie on Instagram and see all of her incredible cooking stuff. It was so fun to talk about Julie and Julia, but then really delve into kind of Hollywood's food scene in a, in a different way. So we're so grateful. Thank you to Haley Beaupre, our producer, and everyone can find us on the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram for 2019. So thank you, Katie. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Thanks for having me. Okay. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>